Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Alex Gibney's new documentary, No Stone Unturned. The film reviews the events of the evening of June 18, 1994, when six men were gunned down and five others wounded in a pub in Northern Ireland that was frequented mainly by Catholics. The families of the victims were promised justice, but 20 years later, they still don't know who killed their loved ones. The documentary reopens the mysterious unsolved case with its allegations of massive collusion between British security forces and loyalist killers. No Stone Unturned was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films for DGA members and guests by presenting screenings of documentaries as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to No Stone Unturned, Mr. Gibney's filmography includes We Still Secrets, The Story of WikiLeaks, Freakonomics, My Trip to Al-Qaeda, the DGA Award-nominated and Emmy Award-winning Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, and the DGA Award-nominated films Client 9, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer, and Taxi to the Dark Side. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in New York, Mr. Gibney spoke with director Mark Levin about filming No Stone Unturned. During their conversation, Mr. Gibney discusses why he chose a dreamlike atmosphere for the film's cinematography, his approach to creating the dramatizations within the film, and how an assignment to do a short for ESPN led to this movie. Alrighty, well, congratulations, Alex, and another uh, incredible piece of work. You you said at the beginning that you were doing or thinking about a film on the World Cup, and you kind of heard this story and became intrigued. Tell, tell us a little more about kind of the genesis, because this does seem a little different than some of the work you've been doing in the last few years. Sure, I mean, it was... Um it was an assignment, really, to do a, 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 a short for ESPN on the World Cup. Uh, and um, this particular incident that had been brought to my attention. So I did. I did, I did the short. But in the process of it, it was just sort of haunted by the struggle of these families. And what was interesting to me was this kind of out-of-the-way village, these sort of everyday group of people who were just determined to find out what happened. And they had no power. They had no resources just a kind of sense of determination that, that something that happened that was not right, and there was a mystery there. And that got me intrigued, and over time, I kind of dug into it. I mean, in a way, there are some echoes here of some of the other stuff that I've done, but I, I think what's different about it is that at least, I mean, <laughs> you know, 22, 23 years ago, uh, it was a big news event. But, you know, it's, a, it's something that's shrouded in the past. And I was kind of interested in this idea of going back um, and, and, and thinking about memory and, and, and how important it is to try to reckon with that past. Well, 
Talk a little about, I mean, um, obviously the, the opening of the film did remind me a little of some of your past work, but how you used recreation, dramatization, and then what the rhythms were that you felt were appropriate, you know, to kind of remind us and echo and have it reverb through the film. How, how did you handle that? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of talk about the recreations or, or whatever they are. I, I think, uh, to me, they're, they're recollections or, or, or memories in a way or, or, um, or imaginations. And yet, here they were there to kind of not only imagine what had happened, but kind of set the, the scene. Because it's very hard to, you know, as a kind of forensic inquiry, it's sort of hard to get it unless you have a sense of where the car was, how the man entered the room, and, um, and as you go back to some of that imagery, it begins to recall it, and then you, you begin to get closer with the evidence to the imagination or, or the memory, and, and that was kind of the, the, the reckoning of it. But it seemed that there were moments you used it as a kind of punctuation, too, or, 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 or exclamation mark. Uh, in the editing of it. I mean, obviously, uh, some of this is shot and uh, you had it work in the opening, which is incredibly uh, cinematic. What, what did you shoot it on? Um, I mean, what was the camera? Yeah. I think it was in a mirror. And, um, uh, and then we had, um, I think we brought in for a day, I, I'm trying to remember now, a camera that that could overcrank a little bit more aggressively, you know, for, for the slow-mo slow of the gun. Um, and the punctuation was there meant to be almost like that, th those kind of images that you sometimes see as you're walking along the street. The idea that suddenly you'll be struck by something, you'll remember a flash of something. Um, and, and that was what it was very much intended to be. And, and also, we spent a lot of time, you know, photographing, um, the landscape, yeah. kind of as if what really happened was lodged in the branches or, or in the you know, or in the dirt underneath the stones that hadn't been turned. Um, that that there was a sense of all of that in the kind of the rhythm of life. So it, it, there was there was an attempt to create a kind of a dreamlike aspect of this. What what has the reaction been? Um, have you shown the film there? Have you you know what? Tell us a little about how people who are much more familiar with this story have reacted to the film. Yeah, well, it's been a, quite a big deal there. It opened, I think, uh, about 10 days ago, uh, maybe two weeks now, and it's, 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 it's caused quite a ruckus. Um, and it's called for, um, some people are calling for an entire revamping of how um, Northern Ireland adjudicates its past. Ireland is also, you know, very interested as well. Um, and to, to my satisfaction, I mean, there was a legal cloud hovering over this film. It, it was supposed to have premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, it premiered this year in New York. Prior this year, it was supposed to be at Tribeca. It had to be pulled for legal reasons. And that had to do with um, the fact that the, uh, our, our original co-producer, the BBC, um, and I had very strong disagreement about what could and could not be shown. Uh -huh. um, and um, so there was a, 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 
it's kind of a massive protest in Northern Ireland because there was a there was a um, seemed like there was an embargo on covering this story in Northern Ireland by the BBC, um, which normally wouldn't wouldn't be done. They'd be all over it, and there was so much ruckus raised that they were kind of forced to come out and do an interview. So it was it was interesting. Well, that seems consistent with your body of work, definitely. <laughs> um, now, what about the suspect? I mean, you know, who you've actually, you know, shown so people would recognize. I mean, has he spoken out? Has he gone in hiding? You know, how has he been dealt with? Well, prior to, you know, <laughs> once we finally found out who he was, um, and, and actually, I mean, I should say, I can say now, but I mean, the... The dispute, a key part of the dispute with us and the BBC, was over the was over not him but his wife, and the question was: Is there are some people in the BBC who saw her as a kind of pure-hearted whistleblower, mm -hmm. and that and that well, we we found out later, of course, that you know, she, the writing the letter was a, was an act of revenge because her husband had been been unfaithful to her. But it, it took us some time to figure that out, and there was concern that. Um, if we revealed her identity, her husband would come after her. But we also discovered that her husband knew, in part because they were both arrested and brought in to see the police back in 1995, that she had written the letter. So, and then that, you know, they, they stayed together for all these years and even started an extermination business. So, um, That's classic. So I think that, you know, I reached out to her first because I initially thought she was the whistleblower. Mm -hmm. um, she responded quickly via email. I don't know what you're talking about, but we kind of kept at it. And then uh, over time, um, when we were fairly certain who they were, I reached out to not only her but to him. We also told them both that we were going to name them. Uh -huh. We said we let them know the kinds of things that the film would be saying. Um, you know, we offered them comment. We would have been happy to have interviewed them. And then we also informed the local police and the, and the police ombudsman's office. So we went pretty far in terms of making sure that there was no surprise there. But the reason ultimately for showing particularly his face was I felt that the state in particular, but also largely speaking the, the, the legal system, had gone overboard to try to protect him. I mean, he had literally gotten away, if, we, if we're right, he had gotten away with murder. And he was living the life of Riley in a pretty big house, you know, much bigger than the families who were the, much bigger than the women who were the families of the victims. Um, so it seemed to me appropriate in a way. Um, why should he escape scrutiny? But, uh, but how has the, have the locals now, now that the movie's out, now that everything's out, everybody knows at least what uh, you've put together? Yeah, well, I, I don't know how things have worked out for Gorman McMullen. I, I'm told that Ronnie Hawthorne, uh, and this is unconfirmed, but I'm told that Ronnie Hawthorne and um, um, Hillary have uh, left the country. We think that they have been escorted or... Um, escorted to a, a safe place by the British government, but we're, we're not 100% certain about that. Why, why, I mean, there's so many levels to the film, obviously, and, and, and the question of an informant being part of the terrorist team. Now, the inform, is the informant still unknown, anonymous? I think there were two, but the only one we were able to confirm 
there's four letters you saw at the end. Three of them were the people in the car, and there was one other Confederate. So we know that that one other Confederate was an informant. It was part of that gang that they knew ahead of time and so forth and so on. I'm fairly certain Ronnie was also an informant. But I couldn't prove it. So at the very end, we had to kind of hedge our bets there. We know there was one, and as I say to uh, Claire, you know, uh, at least one. And that's what also um, Phil Dennison, one of the inspectors, says, at least one. So the, in any event, the British state was part of the gang that committed the crime. Right. But the British state also negotiated a peace treaty. Yep. Uh, and so why are they incapable of saying that mistakes were made? And, and the, you know, the issue of the blowback of an informant is one, a universal issue, that yep. every counterterrorism and, and law enforcement and intelligence agency deals with. I mean, that goes back to the Kennedy assassination, people suspecting that Oswald had ties. Why do you feel the officials have been so reluctant, gone this far in uh, refusing to acknowledge, yes, there were mistakes like this? Because they can. I mean, in Great Britain, they have something called the Official Secrets Act, which protects government officials far more assiduously than in this country. I mean, in this country, we have those problems too. A lot of people go undercover, or they're, they're, they're analysts who are then put undercover uh, in order to protect their identities. Um, and it's, it's part of what governments do. I mean, that's what makes this story, I think, universal. Absolutely. It's, it's part of what, what governments do to prevent um, their own people from being ever held to account. But it's also, I mean, playing devil's advocate, in a, in a fight against terrorists, it's also an indispensable weapon is to have people, I mean, that was for years the attempt to get inside Al-Qaeda or to get inside the leadership of ISIS. You know, that, that's the goal. Um, I, I mean, I agree with that. And, and I think that you need informants. But that's one of the reasons you need to hold people to account or to be able to have some reckoning over time as part of history is to know when that's gone too far. You know, because that, that, that unholy alliance between the informant and the handler can go very wrong, as we know here from the Whitey Bulger case. Um, and, and that's why you need to have some transparency over time to be able to say, okay, you know, there needs to be a line that can't be crossed. We can't allow, like, that's why I included the Scapatici case, not only because it was an IRA issue, but also because it was an instance where here was a guy who was actually fingering people um, for the IRA to be murdered because they were informants. He himself was an informant, and the British government was sitting by and watching while he killed people. You know, when you go that far, that's when the state has kind of crossed the line. They've been morally compromised, um, and the next thing you know, they're allowing murders to be committed and covering them up in order to protect their own culpability. Well, you, you just mentioned the universality of it. I just, you know, this is the first time I saw it because when I last saw you, you said, don't look at it on a video. You need to see it on the big screen, which I appreciate. You know, I see the imagery, the landscapes, the beauty. Um, but I have to say that one of the things that, that, that stayed with me, especially since the opening is so impactful, is here is a portrait of terrorism, and yet, it's with all white, Anglo, and Irish, 
you know, people. It, it, and, and yet we're so used to now the ISIS or, or the mass shooting, you know, that it was, there was a kind of shock, to, shock value in the normality that, that you're describing um, and that you brought, you know, so powerfully to the screen. I, I agree with that. I mean, in, in, one of, in one important way, that's a, an aspect of this film that I feel has been somewhat ignored in this country. Obviously, there's whole levels to this film in Northern Ireland and Ireland that, that we can't possibly get. But here, there's something powerful about seeing both the universality of the, the attempt by the families to try to find the truth, but also the universality of of terror. What happens when um, ideology allows you to believe that the end justifies the means, and then how that takes you into a descent into barbarity, exactly. where where you can you know the guys were laughing as they left the bar because they feel they're somehow justified in committing that kind of act of horror. And how we've just obviously in our own experiences, certainly living in New York, but, but, but we've, we've forgotten that universality. You know, we've kind of particularized it, or if we build a wall, or if we keep certain groups out, we're gonna protect ourselves. And this is a reminder, as you say, that everyone is susceptible to that kind of, of hate. Right? Correct, I mean, we, we see it now, obviously, we've seen it recently, and yet it never quite seems to penetrate, whether it be Dylan Roof or um, the, uh, uh, what am I thinking of Charlottesville? Right. And then also, you know, way back when with the Oklahoma City bombing, I mean, there have been many, many acts of terror committed by white men in this country, and we all too often forget that. Switching gears for a moment before we take questions. The music was a, a, a key part of the film. Talk a little about the score, how you, how you worked that, and when you decided to use it under characters talking, interviews, and when you decided to kind of strip it away? The, um, the music to me was, I mean, there, was, there, there, were, there were a couple of elements to it. One was a very traditional Irish element, which was meant to almost, you know, veer into cliche, you know, where you have this idea, this sense of pure Irishness that then gets undermined. And, and I, had, I used a, a composer I had used before on Taxi to the Dark Side and also uh, Mayor Maxima Culpa. Um, he's, he's British and he brought in a wonderful an Irish, traditional Irish musician named Jerry Diver. But there was a quality also to the score that I wanted to kind of suffuse it. It's a little bit, it comes and goes a little bit like the wind, which is what I wanted. And obviously there are moments it grips you, there are moments it, 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 it's propulsive. But I think the most important thing to me was this kind of haunting quality. You know, that again, I felt this this was this was in many ways a film about memory and loss and and that 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 score was meant to undergird that idea. Well there's an intimacy to the film also uh, and I'm curious if you you know you've been in the center of so many kind of uh, controversial American stories exposé um, was this uh, did you feel freer I'm just talk, as you as a director you know, making this film, I'm curious, was it different in any way, the experience of making? It was different. I mean, I was going someplace strange, and I was not definitely, I mean, I was definitely an outsider, and I had to not only develop some sense of um, intimacy with the people, 
the, the key subjects, but also kind of reckon with the place. Uh, and yet, coming in as an outsider gave me a kind of a freedom that I might not have had. And that's why I pursued the story not as a kind of relitigation of the troubles, but as a simple cold case, a murder mystery. And indeed, that was part of the, 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 the choice of the style right up top with the recreation. It's kind of like a, a true crime drama. Right. But out of that true crime and all the tropes of true crime and all the clues comes something bigger. But you start, you start like Chinatown does with a, with a case of uh, you know, photographing somebody having an affair from a rooftop until you end up with water being stolen from the Owens Valley. Going in as the private eye from outside seemed somewhat liberating in that sense. And, and I didn't get bogged down in a lot of this other stuff that would have, I think, made it difficult for somebody who was more local. How did you shoot the, uh, the opening bar scene, the, 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 the interior part of it? I'm just curious, you know, how you shot that. Not, not the gunman coming up, but the, the men that were drinking. The, 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 you know, I'm just curious. It was kind of a combination of doc and, 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 and fiction film shooting. I mean, you know, I wanted it to be impressionistic, but we had the, um, the match playing on the TV. There were certain moments where I encouraged, you know, where we, I got everybody to cheer at the right moments. And, and we choreographed some stuff in terms of people coming in, but it was kind of setting up a mood uh, and, and orchestrating it, but shooting it a little bit more like you would shoot a documentary even though, you know, obviously we had the slider behind and had a few elegant moves, but it, 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 it was supposed to feel a little bit like a, a doc. I, I, think it, I, I think it was very effective, incredibly effective. I'm not, I'm not sure you're aware, but you know, there was an Al-Shabaab attack uh, in the 2000s during the World Cup in Kampala. Uh, and so when watching this, I mean, again, you know, a place you'd never think of, um, it, 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 it resonated to me. It was very effective, I thought. Well, and that was the other thing I should say that we got wrong when we did the ESPN short. We thought that this was a kind of rogue killing by somebody who had never killed before. Because after all, in a sleepy little village like Lachan Island, surely there couldn't be any organized gangs rapaciously killing people. You know, how wrong we were. You know, that was one of the things we learned was that there had been this gang in this area, this kind of country area, preying on people like wolves. Um, and, and so the whole myth of small town life not being infected by that kind of evil was, was wiped away. You know, there was, there was this kind of purity and this sense of innocence that this place had, but surrounded, there was certainly the darkness there as well, because as you know, as, as you see, from the end of the film, just four miles from here is where, you know, Ronnie and Hillary still live. It's amazing. My final question, were there any uh, British officials or the people that you saw, uh, that was a great moment where the man said, you know, if I answer that question, I know what your next question right. is gonna be. Right. But I'm just curious if any off camera, you know, had a, shared a drink or two with you and then said, look, I'd like to say this, but there's no way I'm saying it on film. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the information we got about Hillary, particularly in terms of her working in the police department, was from one of the investigators, who was one of the few policemen um, 
who really did a good job. He was the guy who actually charged Ronnie the first time for that, for that montage, for for uh, and and for finding all those weapons. You know, um, actually, it turned out we went to the town. It was just four houses down from his original apartment. All those weapons. So that inspector was a pretty good guy, and he told us a lot of stuff, particularly about Hillary, and and what kind of guy Ronnie was, uh, and gave us a lot of color. But of course, refused to go on camera. And the other vexing thing in terms of um, kind of the truth commission is that so many of these ex-cops could simply refuse to be uh, part of the inquiry. So many of the most important people just said, I'm not participating. But no one said, look, Alex, in the end, look, look what's happening. We're, we're living, you know, you're not afraid. You're going to be shot down. There's not a bomb going to be going off. There's a price to pay for that. It's, it's tragic, but this is the price we pay. You mean this is the price we pay? In other words, we can't open up because... Exactly. Yes. And, and in fact, the same guy, that same cop said that very thing to me. We can't open up the anger of the victims, so it's better that they don't know. Um, and, you know, we've got peace now, so why do you want to disturb that? And by the way, you know, if, if I could criticize my own film, I, I, I would say that that aspect of the film might have been worth exploring in a bit more detail, you know, because it is a hard bargain. I mean, they, you know, that, that small area of Ireland was racked by violence for so many years. Uh, and there must have been a moment where people said, well, you know, do we really want to go back? And, and it is an argument. On the other hand, um, you know, there's that poignant pain of the families Absolutely. who need to find out the truth. And it's up to societies, or all of our societies, to find that right balance. It's like Obama famously said, as you know, you know I, I've been much involved in the whole torture debate in this country. Absolutely. You know, as Obama so famous, famously and so sadly said, you know, when he when he declined to prosecute uh, the whole torture initiative of the Bush administration, said, "We don't need to go uh, back. Right. We're only going to go forward." It sounded kind of good and pure-hearted on the one hand, and I understood it. And I think from his perspective, it was a moment of saying, "Look." Politically, I don't want to be seen as the Democrat prosecuting Republicans so that every prosecution is a kind of, um, you know, political hit job. But at the same time, <laughs> you know, you don't want, we don't want all our um, detectives and prosecutors to say, well, the guy's dead and he's not coming back. Let's not go backwards. Right. Let's just go forward. Absolutely. You know, you, you need to find truth and justice. Um where is an American audience going to see this film, Alex? You know, it's a very limited release now. I, I, maybe it's still at the Quad, and it's just opened in L.A., um, but most people will see it on Amazon. Amazon. It's going to yeah. be on Amazon. Yeah. And I know, you know, you have the uh, Rolling Stone uh, two-part documentary on HBO. Uh, are you working on something now? I mean, you've got millions of projects going, but is there another major documentary project that you're in? Um, there's a there's a cool little film. We did a, a series uh, on um, uh, we did a series for Netflix uh, on corporate crime, my sweet spot, and so uh, and I got and because I was the 
proud and then not so, and then ashamed owner of a VW two liter TDI, I decided to do that story, which has turned out very well. And, I, and when people get to see it, which I hope is soon, um, we discovered some stuff that went way beyond my wildest imagination and way beyond the dark scandal that we already know. So that should be uh -huh. interesting. Okay. It's called, well, the fumes that come out of diesel cars is NOx, nitrogen oxide. So it's called hard NOx, N-O-X. All right, well, Alex, um, you continue to amaze us all uh, by your productivity and the, uh, you know, uh, the class of the work you're doing. Uh, I don't know if there are any final questions. I want to thank you. you know, thank you, Mark, again. as always. Well done. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more about the film screen through the DGA's documentary series, Check out our recent episodes featuring director John Ridley's Let It Fall, Los Angeles 1982-1992, director Kenneth Carlson's Heart of Nuba, and director Keith Maitland's Tower. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.